Welcome, everybody. So glad that you could be joining us here today as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40. That's where we're going to be today. And while you are finding Genesis chapter 40, let me just commend all of you who have stayed with us since the very beginning of this series. And when I say the very beginning of this series, I'm talking about going all the way back to the second weekend of September. Can you believe it that we have been in this series since the second weekend of September? So I commend those of you who have been with us since then. And I also want to commend those of you who have joined us since then, jumped right in and are studying the book of Genesis with us. Such a foundational book, all about our heritage, our origins, our faith. And I commend all of you who have jumped right in there with us because we have covered a lot of ground since September and we've got a little bit more to go before we get through the rest of the book. I would say if the book of Genesis was a relay race or we described it like a relay race, then I would say that this is where we are at in our study of Genesis. Um, the, 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 the final baton has been passed to the runner who is going to run the anchor leg and he's got some distance to run, but boy, he is close to the finish line. The finish line is in sight. That's where I would describe us in our journey together. Last week, we were introduced to a young man named Joseph and Joseph is the one who is going to run this anchor leg in Genesis. The baton of God's promise has been passed to him, and he does not disappoint at all. Joseph seems to be one of those guys in the Bible that always just seems to make the right call. He, he doesn't ever mess up. Now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that Joseph is perfect because he's not, or that he was sinless because he certainly had sins. There's only one person in the Bible that's ever lived without any sin, and that was Jesus. So don't let me give you the impression that Joseph never made a mistake, but he is somebody that we can have great admiration for. We can admire him for his great faith and his dependency on the Lord and his integrity. We first meet Joseph in chapter 37. He's 17 years of age, and we learn this detail, that uh, he was his dad's favorite and his brothers hated him for it, so much so they wanted to kill him. And when the opportunity arose, that's exactly what they intended to do. But instead, at the last minute, they decide to sell him off into slavery instead. And so Joseph got a one-way ticket to Egypt as a slave, and that landed him in the house of Potiphar. And that's what chapter 39 is all about. He's in Potiphar's house serving him. And, and as I pointed out last week, the most important detail of chapter 39 is this, that God was with Joseph. God was with him. And it was obvious to those around him. It was obvious to Potiphar, his master, who saw something very special in Joseph's life, and he put him in charge of everything, and everything seemed to be going quite well, that is, until Potiphar's unfaithful wife took notice of Joseph, and when he rejected her multiple advances, she was so angry at him that, he, that she lied about him, and Joseph got thrown into prison. But it was just like in prison, like it was in Potiphar's house, his faith, his integrity was obvious and the prison warden was like, there's something special about you and he puts Joseph in charge of the entire prison. And as a result of all of this, God was with Joseph and, and Joseph had this strong desire to honor God and that's very evident in what he said to Potiphar's wife. He's like, how, how could I be with you? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So God was with Joseph and Joseph desired to honor God but yet, even with all that, he finds himself in prison. 
You know, if you've ever been wrongly accused of something, or if you've ever been punished for a crime that you did not commit, then you have something in common with Joseph, and you can perhaps relate really well to maybe how Joseph is feeling in this part of the story. Ricky Jackson is probably somebody that can relate to Joseph's story quite well. R- Ricky Jackson is the man who, is, uh, who was a, a former U.S. prisoner, and right now he holds the record as the longest incarceration of any U.S. prisoner in history. You see, Ricky was uh, convicted of murder, um, and he would spend 39 years in prison for a crime he did not even commit. And his conviction was overturned in the year 2014 because the, 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 the prime witness in the case, who happened to be a 12-year-old little boy, he recanted his testimony. And he said that, I'm rescinding my testimony because as I look back on it, I was talked into fingering Mr. Jackson as the murderer and he wasn't even there. And he was set free. Joseph was wrongly accused of a crime and he is imprisoned unjustly for it. But what we're gonna see over the next two chapters is that even though Joseph is falsely accused and falsely imprisoned, the sovereignty of God, however, is clearly on display. Now, now what do I mean when I say the sovereignty of God? Well, there's a number of ways that you could describe that, but really what we're talking about is the greatness of God. We're talking about the supremacy of God. The sovereignty of God means that there is absolutely nothing that happens in this universe or, or outside or anywhere that escapes God's notice or is outside of God's influence or is, is beyond God's authority, absolutely nothing. And that concept right there, the sovereignty of God, his greatness, his supremacy is clearly on display in Joseph's story. And I have a question for you. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that he is supreme? Do you believe that he is above all? That there is nothing that happens inside the whole universe that is outside God's influence and his authority. Do you believe that today? Because that is exactly what the Bible teaches us about God. Revelation 21 verse six just tells us this. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That's right, God, he's the beginning of the end. He start to finish, God is over it all. Colossians 1, 15 and following says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What does this tell us about God's sovereignty? It tells us that God created everything. He holds all things together. That's in heaven and on earth, both things that are visible and invisible to us. Friends, God is sovereign. 
Romans 11.33 tells us this. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, there is no limit to God's knowledge. He knows everything past present, future. He knows them before they even happen. How many times when you read the New Testament do we see Jesus predicting something or calling something out before it ever happens? Like when he said to his dear friend, Peter, he said, Peter, before the sun comes up tomorrow, you'll deny me three times. And it happened. That's because God is sovereign. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You think about all the difficult challenges in our world today, and boy, there are many difficult challenges in our world today. That list is very long. None of it is too hard for God, according to God's word. Whatever God wants to do in the universe, he does because nothing is impossible. Psalm 103, 19 tells us this. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So in other words, God is the ultimate source of all power and authority and everything that exists. That, my friends, is sovereign. And only God can make the claim, King of kings and Lord of lords. So in Genesis chapter 40 and Genesis 41, God's sovereignty is clearly on display. And you're going to see that through God orchestrating events in Joseph's life and bringing about his will by what happens around him. So if you've got your Bibles, look with me in chapter 40. Let's, let's start this off. Look at verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The, the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended to them. Friends, it's no accident that these two prisoners were assigned to Joseph. It was God's sovereignty that put these three men together in order to advance the purposes of God. Now, the, the cupbearer and the baker, these were two extremely important positions in Egypt. I mean, these guys had direct access to Pharaoh. And the cupbearer's job is to basically just make sure that the king's wine is perfect, that it's not poisoned, that he's not going to get sick. I mean, he is right there with the king. And the baker, his job was essentially the same thing, only it had to do with food, not with wine. And, and, and we don't know what these guys did, but something they did really upset Pharaoh, and um, he throws them in jail. It's almost, it kind of has this feel. It's like, I, I don't know who's responsible. It's one of you two, and I don't know who, and I'll figure it out, but until then, you're both going to jail, and that's, that's exactly what, what happened. Little did Joseph know at the time that God was orchestrating these two men to come into his life at this exact moment to open the door for Joseph's own freedom and for the role that God would have Joseph play in the future. Now, whatever these sins that these guys committed, I want you to know, and I hope we all know this, God had nothing to do with their crimes. God doesn't sin. He is not the author of it either. However, God used their crime as an opportunity to advance his purpose for Joseph. And ultimately, to advance his purpose 
for the entirety of God's people who haven't even been born yet. He can do that because he is sovereign. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. He sees everything, the invisible and the visible, things in heaven and on earth. That's why God can do this. Now now think about it like this and just put together some of the pieces of the, the timeline of this story to see God's sovereignty. Had Potiphar, not, as Potiphar's wife, not falsely accused Joseph, he would not have been in prison at this time. If the cupbearer cup, uh, cup and the baker had not angered Pharaoh, they would not have been in prison at this time. And if Joseph's brothers had not sold him off into slavery, Joseph would not have even been in Egypt at this time. In all of these events, we see the will of God working through circumstances and men's actions, even their, their wicked actions, to bring about God's purpose and his plan. Well, while they're all in prison, both the cupbearer and the baker, they each had a dream on the same night, and the Bible tells us that um, it was greatly troubling to them. And Joseph shows up the next day to perform all of his duties that he's in charge of, and, and he finds that these two guys are really kind of emotionally, they're, they're a mess. They don't know what to make of these dreams. They were so disturbed by them. Look at verse eight. They said this to Joseph. We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. And then Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. You know what I love about this interaction that Joseph is having in prison with these two individuals who can't seem to figure out what's going on inside these dreams of theirs. What I love about it is that Joseph immediately points them in God's direction. Joseph's like, you guys can't figure out, but let me tell you something, God can. And I I read that and I go, shouldn't that be our reaction to to all of life's difficulties? Shouldn't that be our reaction no no matter what we encounter? Like, I don't know what's going on, but I know who does, God knows. I don't know how to figure this out, but I know who can, God can. This is just another indicator of of Joseph's integrity and where he's at and his thoughts and belief and worship of God. He's like, I can't do it. Nobody can, but I'll tell you, God owns the interpretation of these dreams. You know, Joseph was talking about God even in Potiphar's house. He's talking about God here in prison. And Joseph will indeed interpret their dreams, but he wants it to be absolutely clear that the interpretation, the solution is God. They come from him. Well, if you keep reading, Joseph, by God's divine power, he's able to interpret these dreams, which essentially amounted to this. One of them, being the cupbearer, he's going to be restored into Pharaoh's service. But the baker is going to have his head taken off and his body impaled on a stick. So how do you like that for dreams? You think you have some, some nasty nightmares from time to time? It's probably nothing like what this guy's experienced. Joseph's like, yeah, you wanna know what your dream means? You're gonna lose your head and your body's gonna be raised up on a pole. That's a scary dream. And it came to be exactly like Joseph said. But sadly, as you keep reading, the cupbearer who was saved from all this, who was restored back to his position, the one that can be right next to Pharaoh and tell him anything he wants, he completely forgot about Joseph. And even though Joseph had asked them, hey, when you get out of here, don't forget this, the cupbearer completely forgot about it. Look at verse 14. 
Joseph said to him, when all of this goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh, get me out of this prison. I was forcefully carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. You know, Joseph's no different than anybody else. He doesn't want to stay in that prison one second longer than he has to. And I think in Joseph's mind, he sees this as an opportunity. Man, the cupbearer, he can go talk to Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh can see what a good thing that's happened and, and how the truth came out and all of this, and he will get me out of here. But here's the reality, and this is where God's sovereignty is seen again. It was not time for Joseph to get out of jail. So Joseph's completely forgotten. It's not gonna cross anybody's mind for several years what happened that day down in that prison cell. You know, I wonder um, if it ever occurred to Joseph. At any point in, at Potiphar's house or any point in prison, I wonder if it ever occurred to him his own dreams. Here he is interpreting the dreams of others, but what did he think about his own dreams? Now I'm talking about going back when he was a teenager and what started all this is he had some dreams that all of his family was gonna bow down to him one day and I wonder if, if Joseph ever thought back to those dreams and if anything would ever come of those dreams. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that many years down the road, as, as Joseph looks back on his life, he could see quite clearly the full picture of everything that God was doing in his life. I know he thought about those early dreams when his, of seeing his family bow down to him and how all that came through. True, I'm sure he saw and thought about that years later when, when he could see it all come together. But I wonder if he's thought much about how maybe God was orchestrating even something from those early dreams while he sat there in prison. You know, we do know that later Joseph is gonna tell his brothers, way when we get to Genesis chapter 50, when they're afraid for their lives, and Joseph said, brothers, you intended something for evil, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. This is Joseph having perspective on his life. This is Joseph saying, all the pieces come together but I wonder if he thought about that much when he was in prison. And if he did, did he interpret his own dreams that one day that uh, eventually he's gonna be elevated out of this prison and that he would meet his brothers again and they would actually bow down to him? Wonder if that was a conscious thought in his mind. I wonder if that gave him confidence while he was in prison that God is going to come through for me. I've seen it in these dreams. I mean, it is possible that this entire time God told Joseph, or he knew all along that he was getting out of there and one day would be confronting his brothers again because that's what the dreams meant. I guess we'll never know for sure exactly what Joseph was thinking and, and what his understanding was um, as he recounted or even counted on those prophetic dreams. But what is remarkable is that Joseph still, as a young man, never gave way to any kind of hopelessness but he always waited on God to, to prove himself faithful. That, that's what's obvious in all of this. What an incredible testimony. Something kept Joseph going this entire time, and, and perhaps it was. Maybe it was his own dreams that kept him going, and maybe it was those original dreams that provided him enough encouragement and hope during this, what really has been a very difficult season of his life. I have no doubts that God was using Joseph's time in prison 
to prepare him for the future. That's obvious. Joseph's season in prison and his time with Potiphar was all about preparing him for the future. And I certainly believe that that is exactly how God works today. He works in similar ways in our lives. In his sovereignty, God sends experiences into our lives that prepare each of us for some upcoming task. And you know, we may not even know that's happening in the moment. We may have no knowledge at all that we are being prepared for something, but that speaks to God's sovereignty and how great he is that God is orchestrating things and preparing us for things that we may not even be aware of. I can tell you that, that I have seen this even in my own life, and I am confident that many of you see it as well in your own lives especially as we look backwards and we see God's fingerprints on different things. As I look back on my own ministry journey, going back to 1995, at the age of 19, I had a summer internship in a, at a church in, in Oklahoma. This was an internship that just fell out of the sky. I wasn't looking at it, it just, it just happened. And then like a week later, it started. I, it's nothing I was planning to be a part of. I didn't know it at the time. But God was using that experience to call me into ministry. I see that now. But I didn't know God was preparing me for anything back then. And then in 1996, I didn't see it as this way at the time, but God started opening doors for me to start preaching. And I was preaching on a regular basis in different churches in Missouri and Oklahoma and Kansas. And then at the end of 1996, just before my 21st birthday, um, I became the preacher of a little small country church in southeast Kansas, and, and I would preach at that church for, for almost two years until I graduated from Ozark Christian College, and, and uh, I didn't see it at the time, but God was using these experiences to prepare me for something that was coming. I, uh, Kirsten and I would spend the next five years of our lives moving around a lot. We moved five times to five different states in those five years, all doing ministries that God put in front of us. That, that season of our lives took us from Missouri to Oregon, and then from Oregon to Illinois, then Illinois to Indiana, then from Indiana back to Illinois, and then from Illinois back to Oklahoma. What a whirlwind. It was a crazy season. I don't ever want to do that again. I didn't know it at the time. Like I said, God was using experiences. I believe God was orchestrating things during those early years to prepare me for a much larger work that would take up the next 11 years of my life. And, and, and that was in Kansas City. And I, and I didn't know that my 11 years in Kansas City was God using to prepare me for the next step in my life. As I look back on it, and, and I, I know every last one of us can do the same thing. As I look back on it, I can point to Many experiences, and it would take too long to unpack every one, but happy to tell you anytime you want individually. But I can look at all these experiences, good ones and, and sometimes really bad experiences. It's clearly the work of God's sovereignty. I can't read the story of Joseph, especially this part, without recalling the numerous conversations I had with my father back in this season just to vent, just to unload. My, my father was in ministry for over 50 years and he just kind of understood everything. And, but I'll tell you, I'd call him from time to time just, just to vent. I had some really frustrating experiences early in my ministries. And so frustrating that at one point I was even ready to hang it up and walk away from ministry. And I came very close to doing that, believe it or not. 
I don't, I don't know how many times my father would say to me, Joe, God is preparing you for something in the future that you can't see right now. He has a purpose for these hard experiences. God is in control. Don't ever forget it. Well, I miss those conversations, to be honest with you. I'll have them again in heaven for sure. There is this uh, really popular song, this worship song. I first heard it a couple years ago when it was making its rounds on Christian radio and, and was being sung in hundreds of churches all over America. And I love this song. And it, it really speaks to what I believe we're studying about in Joseph's life and this part of his life story. The worship song is called God Turn It Around by John Reddick. Maybe you've heard of it. and maybe, uh, maybe you've heard of it you not even realized it. But I love this song because it focuses our attention, our worship on the sovereignty of God. It helps me focus in on the activities of God around us, things that we don't even see him doing. That's what this worship song is about. The, the lyrics are quite simple to this song. It just goes, all of my hope is in the name of Jesus. Breakthrough will come in the name of Jesus. I'm praying, God, come and turn this thing around because all of my hope is in the name of Jesus. And that's basically most of the words to the song right there. It's, it's my hope is in the name of Jesus. Turn things around, Lord. But, but it's the bridge of the song that really impacts me in a significant way because in the bridge of the song, the song completely transitions. It gets really soft and quiet and the lyrics turn to this. He is up to something. God is up to something right now. He is healing someone. He is saving someone right now. He is moving mountains, making way for someone. God is doing something right now. All of my hope is in the name of Jesus. Breakthrough will come in the name of Jesus. God, turn it around. Joseph's story here in chapter 40 should be a reminder to all of us that God is always up to something. And often, he sends these experiences into our lives that prepare us for an upcoming task. And we may have no idea in the present what we are being prepared for. That, that hardship that you are enduring right now just might be the foundation for something that God has his fingerprints on that he will have you involved with later that you would not be ready to do if you weren't experiencing what you are experiencing right now. God is, is up to something. And if he does this for Joseph, why wouldn't he do it for you as well? God used that time in Potiphar's house and that time in prison to get Joseph ready? How much time was that exactly? I mean, how much preparation time are we talking about? Well, we know this. The Bible tells us that he was 17 when he was sold off into slavery. And the Bible tells us that he'll spend 13 years before he's elevated into to Pharaoh's leadership. 13 years of this season of preparation to get him ready for what God was having him do next. I, I said this before, but the cupbearer, what's he do? He goes off and he forgets all about Joseph. Doesn't say a word to Pharaoh on Joseph's behalf. It's, it's not for a couple years later 
that Pharaoh started to have his own troubling dreams. The Bible tells us that Pharaoh had two dreams and they were so disturbing to him, he, he pulled in everybody he could find to try to interpret these dreams. Nobody could figure it out. And that's when the cupbearer goes, oh yeah, did I ever tell you about Joseph? Pharaoh, have I ever told you about the dreams I had? There's this guy I met in prison and he, he interpreted my dream and it, and it came true exactly as he said. And Pharaoh's like, get that man up here ASA. Well, if you've read chapter 41 already, then you know that Joseph did indeed interpret Pharaoh's dreams, but not before Joseph told him this. Look at chapter 41, verse 16. He said, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Do you see this? Do you see where Joseph is at? 13 years of this preparation, and he looks Pharaoh in the eye, and he says, I can't do what you want me to do. But God is up to something. God is something, something big, and God can do it. I can't do it, Pharaoh, but God can do it, and he will do it. There's a lot of humility in, in that response from Joseph. I would have, I'm guessing, I wonder if Joseph could have made the same response when he was 17, or when he was 20, or when he was 25, or even when he was 28. Could Joseph, was he at the spot when he could look at Pharaoh and say something like that? Maybe he needed to wait till he was 30. It took that long to God to get him ready to have this conversation right here. 13 years of preparation because God is up to something. And it's time. Well, Joseph gives it all to God and tells Pharaoh what's going on and basically these two dreams amount to this. For the next seven years, life in Egypt is gonna be great. Lots of crops, everything will have plenty, everybody's happy, but that's gonna be followed by seven really bad years, bad years of famine. So we better plan well now so we'll have food during the famine. If you look at verse 28, it is this. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Boy, this had to take great courage on Joseph's part to speak so boldly. To, to have this no bones about it conversation that this is of God, it has been firmly decided, God will do this, Pharaoh, and God will do it soon. He is supreme, he is above all. He is in control of the weather, he is in control of the forecast, he is in control of the crops, he is in control of rain, he is control of everything. So Joseph said, put somebody in charge for the next seven years, hold back a fifth of all the harvest and then you'll have plenty of food during the famine. And not only did Pharaoh like Joseph's plan, but God moved him to appoint Joseph to be the man in charge of all this. Look at verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with the respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And I want you to see something. I want you to see God's sovereignty. Joseph was a slave and he was elevated to a place of prominence in Potiphar's house. And then he became a prisoner and he was elevated to a place of prominence in the jail by the prison warden. And now, all these years later, 
Joseph is elevated to a place of great prominence in Egypt by Pharaoh. This is what God is doing. God is up to something very big. This is not God's or Joseph's doing. This is God's doing. And everything played out exactly like Joseph had said. Seven good years followed by seven bad years. During the seven years of famine, there was plenty of food to eat. The Bible says, in fact, they stored so much food, it was just overflowing. They just stopped counting. There was so much. But that severe famine would spread out beyond Egypt, and it would spread out into the land of Canaan, where his father Jacob and all of his brothers lived. And it wouldn't be long after this that Joseph's brothers would have no choice but to travel to Egypt to buy food. They would have to buy it directly from their brother, Joseph. And boy, where we're going next week, you're gonna see God's sovereignty all the more. But friends, as we close this chapter on our study, I I want to leave you with two truths today. Two truths that I hope you'll take with you and you'll put a lot of thought to and remember in the days ahead. The first one is this. God's sovereignty reminds us and calls us for submission. God's sovereignty reminds us and calls for our submission. God is up to something and we must submit to what he is doing in our lives. When we see the fingerprints of God on things, it reminds us that he is the creator of the universe who loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, down the cross for our sins. He calls us to submit to his ways and his purposes. His fingerprints are on everything. Romans 8, 28 tells us this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God's sovereignty reminds us and calls for our submission. You are in control, God. I wanna be a part of what you are doing. May that be all of our positions. Second thing I wanna leave you with is this truth. God's sovereignty inspires us to worship him. So we think about the greatness of God, his sovereignty. We see that in in very tangible ways oftentimes. God moving in somebody's life. Uh, We hear a testimony of a changed life or we learn about a a miracle or somebody we know is healed from an illness or there is a a direct answer to prayer or there's an opportunity or there's a circumstance that came together and we say only God could do that. On and on and on when we see these very tangible things, they all inspire us to worship. Psalm 24, verse one and two says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the water. It's all God's. Who are you gonna worship now? Psalm 145, three tells us this, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness, no one can fathom. Do you believe that God is sovereign? If you do, it will absolutely show in your life. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just thank you for this text as always. We thank you, Lord, for how you, how you just watch over us and how you are orchestrating things that we don't even see and do because, Lord, you are up to something. 
So Lord, I just pray you help us to exhibit great trust and hope and faithfulness and integrity, just like Joseph did as you do your things, things that are visible and things that are invisible, things in heaven and on earth. Lord, that help us to be very aware today that nothing escapes your notice and you are in control. Lord, I pray that all of that leads us to a deeper level of worship than we've ever had before. As we come to terms with just how big you are and how supreme you are and how you work in our lives, Lord, may we turn our hearts in worship to you. Lord, this is our prayer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.